Greetings, and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Shute, and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on June 16th. The article for that call will be The ad Older Adult Driver with Cognitive Impairment. Please join us. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we encourage everyone to do so. Today, our featured author is Dr. Roger Chow, first author of the article, Will This Patient Develop Disabling Low Back Pain? His article was published in the April 7, 2010 edition of JAMA. Dr. Chow is Associate Professor of Departments of Medicine and Medical Informatics and Clinical Epidemiology at Oregon Health and Science University School of Medicine. He is also Scientific Director of the Evidence-Based Practice Center funded by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, AHRQ, and he's also Director of Clinical Guidelines Development for the American Pain Society. His research includes systematic review methodology, meta-analysis, screening and preventive services, guideline development, and comparative effectiveness. Dr. Chow has led systematic evidence reviews for the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, AHRQ's Effective Healthcare Program, for the American Pain Society, and the Drug Effectiveness Review Project. He is a fellow of the American College of Physicians and a member of its Clinical Efficacy Assessment Committee, which develops clinical practice guidelines. Welcome, Dr. Chow. Thanks for having me. Well, we are delighted to have you here today. Uh, as, as moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Chow's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on his article. The opportunity of author in the room is for you to hear directly from Dr. Chow. Um, and with that and our discussion, we hope to help translate, again, his research into improvements in your clinical practice. Here's how the call will proceed. Uh, Dr. Chow will spend about 10 to 15 minutes summarizing his findings. We will then take a couple minutes to discuss some of the implications in real-world practice and set the stage for your questions. We want to stress how important your participation is for this call. It's a great forum to get clarification on anything in the article itself and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps that we might take in using this information uh, to improve care. Your participation in terms of questions, but also offering up your experience, will be invaluable. There are approximately 30 phone lines connected to the call, with generally several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background-only basis. Uh, one other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming audio or podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available on these sites. Now let's get started. Let me again welcome Dr. Chow, who will provide an interview, uh, overview of his recent article. Dr. Chow. Uh, thanks. So um, I'll be, the article we did um, for uh, JAMA, let me just go over a little, uh, little bit of background. Um, low back pain, um, as probably everyone on this call knows, is just extremely common um, in clinical practice. Um, we see it all the time. 
Um, it's the second most common symptomatic reason for people to go visit the doctor, um, trailing just uh, URIs. Uh, there are a couple of um, things that don't cause symptoms that are a little bit more common, things like hypertension and hyperlipidemia. But in terms of you know people having uh, symptoms and coming to see the doctor, low back pain is the second most uh, common reason. Um, it's really expensive. Uh, we think we spend over $100 billion per year in the United States on low back pain care. Um, and it has a lot of uh, impacts on patients. Um, it causes a lot of activity. It's the most common cause of activity limitations and uh, disability uh, in younger and working age adults. Um, so, so, it's, so, so this is kind of the, the setup for, for why low back pain is so important uh, to understand and to uh, treat uh, effectively. Now, the good news about low back pain is that most people, uh, you know, almost every adult will have low back pain at some point in their life. Uh, estimates are 80% or so of adults, you know, have had, um, you know, back pain that causes problems uh, at some point. The good news is that the vast majority of those people will get better um, in just a few weeks, um, either with or without treatment, uh, something like 80 to 90% of, of people uh, uh, get better uh, quickly. Uh, the problem is that there is a relatively small proportion of people uh, who don't get better, um, and they go on to develop or back pain that's persistent um, and can last for months uh, and often for years uh, or for the rest of their life. Um, this, these people um, have what we call persistent disabling low back pain, uh, which can interfere with their ability to work. Um, it has a lot of impacts on their ability to interact with their family and enjoy life in general. Um, they also account for a big part of the share of the costs associated with low back pain. We think that about 5 to 10% of people with chronic disabling low back pain actually account for uh, more than 50% of the costs associated with low back pain, uh, as well as the services uh, that are used for low back pain. Um, and uh, we seem to be doing worse in terms of the numbers of people that are developing chronic disabling low back pain. Uh, there was a survey performed in uh, North Carolina in 1992 that showed that 3.9% of surveyed adults uh, reported uh, back pain uh, that caused some type of functional limitations. Uh, when they repeated that survey 14 years later in 2006, that number had jumped from 3.9% to 10.2%. Uh, so we're actually seeing more people uh, with chronic disabling low back pain. Um, the idea behind the study is that, uh, our study is that, uh, if we can identify uh, people who uh, might go on to develop chronic uh, persistent disabling low back pain, early on when they first present to the doctor or within the first few weeks of their symptoms, um, that would be really useful information because then uh, we might be able to intervene um, and alter that natural history. Um, we might be able to uh, initiate closer follow-up or do other types of uh, interventions like uh, psychological interventions or physical therapy early on. Uh, which could uh, prevent those people from uh, developing chronic disabling low back pain, and that could have a huge impact um, on uh, costs and other outcomes uh, for this condition. Now, uh, the reason that we did our review um, was because uh, people have, been, have talked about this for a long time. People refer to uh, predictors of chronic disabling low back pain as uh, yellow flags, meaning that they're warning signs. Uh, the term yellow. 
the problem is that most of the reviews in the past have not uh, been very, uh, I'll say, quantitative, meaning that they're really pretty descriptive. Um, and that can be helpful in some senses, but you know, uh, it, uh, a lot of the reviews uh, give conflicting results, um, and they don't tell people how strong some of these predictors are, uh, which makes it less useful for people in clinical practice. You know, knowing something uh, is a predictor is not as helpful as knowing whether something's a strong, really good predictor, or a relatively weak predictor. Um, and understanding, um, you know, how to uh, use those uh, predictors is problematic. Uh, so what we did was that uh, we uh, decided to look for all of the studies systematically uh, that had looked at, you know, uh, people with acute low back pain and followed them up uh, for three to six months or longer, uh, up to a year or two. Um, to see um, if we could uh, figure out uh, which uh, factors um, can help uh, clinicians identify those patients who are going to go on uh, or are at higher likelihood of going on to develop persistent disabling low back pain. Um, so we looked for all the studies and then we extracted data from the studies to calculate um, what we call likelihood ratios, uh, which is a number that tells you um, how much um, having that uh, risk factor uh, changes your odds of having uh, chronic persistent disabling low back pain. Um, though that number is, is very helpful from a clinical standpoint because it, uh, it can be translated um, and you can actually do calculations or, or do ballpark uh, estimates of uh, how likely somebody is to, de to develop this problem. Uh, so we found a total of about 20 studies. Um, they enrolled uh, close to 11,000 patients altogether. Um, and we looked at about uh, 15 different uh, types of uh, uh, predictors. Uh, these ranged from things like age uh, and sex, whether people had previous low back pain episodes, whether they smoked, uh, weight. Uh, we looked at factors related to work, uh, whether people were dissatisfied at their job, whether they had a lot of physical um, uh, requirements at work. Uh, we also looked at psychological factors, like whether they had uh, a history of depression, um, whether uh, they had what we call maladaptive pain coping strategies. That means that people uh, react to the pain uh, in ways that aren't helpful. Um, they focus uh, too much on it, uh, or they um, uh, stop uh, being active uh, because of fears about the pain, those kinds of things. We also looked at general health status, um, uh, as well as how much the low back pain was interfering with their function um, and the severity of pain with the low back pain um, and also uh, whether back pain was causing uh, sciatica or radiculopathy, meaning whether the back pain uh, was potentially pinching a nerve and causing pain uh, that traveled down to the leg. Uh, what we found was that a lot of the um, risk factors, all of these risk factors have been looked at in other studies and at least a couple of studies have um, suggested that they are predictors. Uh, we actually found that several of these items were not predictive of low back pain um, at all uh, in terms of uh, your, your likelihood of developing chronicity. Um, so those things were age, uh, whether somebody was less than 40 or 45 years old uh, versus older, um, whether someone was female or male also was not a predictor. Uh, level of education wasn't a predictor. Uh, smoking status didn't, wasn't a predictor. 
um, and weight wasn't a predictor either. Um, smoking status and weight, I think, have uh, often been uh, postulated as being uh, predictors of chronicity, and those didn't turn out to be. Um, and those results were really very consistent across all of the studies um, that looked at those uh, predictors. Um, a few things were what we would call relatively weak predictors, uh, meaning that the likelihood ratios were around 1.5. Um, these were things like uh, variable, uh, things uh, uh, associated with the work environment. Um, so here we're talking about work satisfaction, uh, whether somebody is on sick leave, um, the kinds of physical demands at work, um, et cetera. Um, that was associated with a likelihood ratio of about 1.5, which is uh, considered a relatively weak predictor. Um, the baseline pain, so people with more severe pain, were also uh, slightly more likely to develop persistent disabling low back pain, but it wasn't a strong predictor. Again, the likelihood ratio was around 1.5. Um, and the presence of radiculopathy or sciatica um, was also a relatively weak predictor. All of those likelihood ratios were around 1.5. The things that seemed to be stronger predictor uh, were really things that we consider to be more uh, in the psychological realm um, or the functional realm. So these include things like uh, presence of uh, what we call non-organic signs, which means pain that really isn't in a physiologic or anatomic distribution. Um, that was associated with a likelihood ratio of around three. Uh, if people had high levels of maladaptive pain coping behaviors, uh, that was about 2.5. Uh, a lot of uh, functional impairment, so not just pain, but whether the pain was actually interfering with people's ability to work or function normally uh, was a predictor. Uh, depression, uh, or other psychiatric comorbidities, uh, and low general health status, all of those were, had a likelihood ratio of around two. Um, we also looked at um, risk prediction instruments. So those are often um, useful in clinical practice because you know a clinician can apply a tool. This would be something like a mini mental status examination or a PHQ-9 for depression. Those are commonly used instruments and they're clinically really helpful. They combine multiple attributes um, and they can, you know, uh, they can uh, help you, uh, I, you know, use the, the numbers or the prediction that comes from that uh, to stratify risk. Uh, the problem we found was that many of those instruments uh, have not been validated in a lot of studies, uh, so their reliability is not really known. Um, also, the, uh, a lot of the instruments used items that, weren't, that we actually found weren't predictive, uh, which is kind of a problem. So a lot of those had things like age, uh, educational level, et cetera, uh, which really aren't that predictive. So that suggests that there's some problem with uh, some of the components there. Uh, the other thing is that uh, many of the instruments, when they were actually validated, didn't show likelihood ratios that were much higher than what you got with the individual variables, um, which is disturbing because we'd like the instruments to actually, uh, you know, be more uh, useful than just looking at individual items. So there definitely needs to be more work in the development of risk prediction instruments, um, and we know that some of this work is going on. So. Those were our main findings. You know, our, our, our conclusions were that, you know, a small proportion of patients with acute low back pain do go on to develop chronic low back pain. Um, the most helpful items to predict that are the presence of maladaptive coping behaviors, non-organic signs, functional impairment, general health status, and presence of psychiatric comorbidities. 
if clinicians identify patients with these kinds of factors early on, these are patients where it's appropriate to, you know, arrange earlier or closer follow-up. It may be appropriate to think about early physical therapy. Uh, for example, if somebody is depressed or if somebody has maladaptive pain coping behaviors, these are people who it might be very useful to uh, think about cognitive behavioral therapy uh, or other types of psychological therapy to address those early on before uh, those patterns kind of become set. Um, and uh, there's certainly uh, a, lot, a need for more research on how to optimally uh, treat uh, the people uh, who we identify as being at high risk. Uh, but we think that this is a, you know, first you need to be able to identify those people uh, to be able to study them. And we think that um, our study uh, gives researchers and clinicians uh, a good starting point. Well, great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Chow. Um, thank you very much for your great discussion. Um, I, you know, I really would second your notion, number one, that this is a, a huge challenge for us in healthcare and a huge challenge for society, you know, based not only on the cost but the amount of uh, morbidity that grows from this. Um, I'm a little struck by really what your research tells me that uh, the physical findings that I was trained to elicit as a physician uh, probably are not all that predictive, and that in fact the psychological factors uh, may be the most predictive in terms of who we need to be concerned about and who we may need to bring additional resources in. Is that that correct? I think that's correct, and um, you know this is uh, you know some of the other background data is that you know we we tend to try to focus on the physical or anatomic issues. And uh, we know this because we do a lot more surgery in the United States than anywhere else, and those surgery rates are going up tremendously. They've gone up about threefold for fusion surgery in the last 10 years. Um, also, interventional procedures, which are targeted at specific anatomic structures, have exploded. Uh, but as I told you before, um, that's had no impact on the prevalence or incidence of chronic disabling low back pain, and if anything, we're doing worse, not better. And to me, at least, this really suggests that we need to step back um, first, you know, not just trying to address these issues before they become chronic, um, but also thinking about back pain as a, you know, biopsychosocial issue. It's really not just uh, biology or something wrong with uh, a structure in the back, but it's dealing with some of these psychosocial things uh, where we may actually get more uh, impact um, in terms of, uh, you know, helping patients. Well, well, Dr. Chow, that, that seems as an internist or primary care doctor to present challenges for me in terms of how I do that. And I guess my other editorial comment was I think that challenges our healthcare delivery system um, to think about this in a very different way. So, so with that, actually what I'd like to do um, is um, invite Carrie to go ahead and invite our callers to begin jumping in with questions. Uh, then I've got one more question for you before we uh, turn it back over to our callers. But Carrie, could you go ahead and uh, introduce uh, to our listeners how they can phone in with a question? Certainly. The question and answer session will be conducted electronically. If you would like to ask a question, please do so by pressing the star key followed by the digit 1 on your touchtone telephone. If you are using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Once again, it is star one on your touch tone telephone to ask a question. 
Thank you, Carrie. So, so Dr. Cho, I mean, one one more question. As as you know, I look at my patients with persistent low back pain. Um, I really do tend to focus on mechanical or surgical interventions, and and a lot of the processes I follow are to identify who those patients are with an identifiable lesion to see if there may be some, something there that we can or should fix. What I think I hear you saying is that we're maybe looking for the wrong stuff and that anatomy is not as important as someone's psychological makeup, which may lead me to the conclusion that it's really more about psychology than anatomy. Um, do you care to comment on that or can you refine that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, it's complicated. I think that um, it's correct in some senses and, and maybe um, inaccurate in others. So there are certain types of anatomy that are important to identify. Um, there are things we call red flags, um, which are, you know, signs of a serious problem that needs to be dealt with right away. Uh, we didn't address those in our study, but they've been addressed in many other studies including another article in the Rational Clinical Exam series. But those are signs of cancer, uh, compression of the cauda equina, um, infection, those kinds of things. And, and those, you know, um, we think clinicians are actually pretty good at identifying people who have all that stuff. So, so we're pretty good at identifying the patient with really sort of urgent interventional needs. In general, we are. If anything, we probably over-test and overlook for those kinds of things. Um, but we certainly don't want people to be blasé about, you know, that stuff right. because delayed diagnosis can cause problems. Sure. Um, what, what, but, well, the, what, what I didn't hear you say is that radicular symptoms per se are, are not a reason for early intervention. They're not necessarily, and, and you know, there's, there are actually um, studies that uh, there, was, there, have been, uh, there was a large multicenter NIH trial that just was published a couple of years ago called the SPORT trial, S-P-O-R-T, that's an acronym for the Spine uh, Outcomes Research Trial, um, which uh, looked at this question about radiculopathy and also spinal stenosis, which can also, which can also cause nerve impingement. Um, and it, it, it found that patients who did undergo immediate surgery actually uh, do um, do better in the short run compared to people who continue to have medical care. Uh, but if you follow those people out after three or six months um, or a little bit longer, um, the curves start to come together and the improvements don't seem to be so uh, dramatic and they might disappear at some point. Um, so it's re so you're really talking about a relatively short-term benefit for a you know somewhat large procedure as well as expensive procedure. Um, the other thing that we found from the sport trials is that people with radiculopathy get better whether they have surgery or uh, medical treatment. The average improvement was about 30 points um, either way, and people that didn't have surgery right away. Uh, didn't end up having permanent neurologic damage, which is a, what a lot of clinicians fear. If you don't treat the person with a herniated disc, uh, you know, they're going to have a permanent, you know, foot drop or something like that. And that, that doesn't happen. It doesn't mean that some people don't go on to have surgery later when they, you know, develop, you know, more persistent symptoms. Um, but no, it, 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 it's, it's a thing that, you know, it looks like um, it's really a patient, you know, a shared uh, patient decision thing because there's trade-offs. You know, there's a trade-off between the surgical risks and the costs, um, and some people just don't want to have surgery um, versus, you know, some potential short-term benefit. Um, and I think that that's a kind of decision, um, you know, to make 
uh, with patients. Uh, the other thing I should note is that you know, there are rare circumstances where somebody uh, undergoes surgery for a herniated disc acutely, but in all of the trials that we have, um, these are people who have not uh, improved after eight weeks or so, um, and that's because the natural history of a herniated disc um, with uh, nerve impingement is for improvement, just like it is for regular low back pain. Um, I was going to say that, you know, the, the, the other thing with, um, you know, so, so once you've looked at radiculopathy and you've looked, and you've looked for the real serious conditions and spinal stenosis, um, then we're actually not left with that much uh, in terms of uh, a, a mechanical target for therapies. Um, the fusion surgery is basically, you know, uh, assuming that the disc is causing the problem. There's a variety of interventional therapies that target the facet joint uh, or the disc or other structures, the epidural space. Um, and it's not real clear that any of those procedures are all that much better than uh, medical treatment. Um, so, for example, the trials of fusion surgery have shown that people who undergo that surgery, which is the most common surgery done for uh, low back pain in the United States, uh, people do about the same as if they get intensive interdisciplinary rehabilitation. And this is a surgery that costs fifty-five to seventy thousand uh, dollars, include with all the attendant risks. Wow. Um, so I think it really does call into question some of the practices, um, as well as some of the reimbursement, you know, policies um, and availability of interdisciplinary rehab and, and a lot of these other kind of big kind of healthcare um, issues uh, about how to manage uh, these types of patients effectively. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Chow, and, and we've certain, certainly wandered a, away from just uh, the, the, the focus of the article, which is low back pain without neurologic involvement. Uh, but I think it always kind of gets mixed together, both in terms of how we think about our practice and our system. So thank you for be willing, being willing to comment on those other things. At this point, I'd like to check in with Carrie and see if we have any callers in the queue. We do have two callers in queue, and we'll go first to Reginald Knight with Facet Healthcare. Great. Thank you. Go ahead, Reginald. Yeah, I was just concerned about uh, you know, the risk-predicting in instruments. If Dr. Chow had an idea, if, if there were none that were really truly validated, uh, which would he choose if he was going to create a, a registry that he was going to look at these patients preoperatively? Um, so we don't um, really uh, recommend any of the risk-prediction instruments for the very reason that uh, we think that they need to be uh, better validated. Um, if you forced me to choose one, I would say that, you know, the two that have been looked at the best are the Vermont Disability Prediction Questionnaire, uh, which is an 11-item questionnaire that's been validated in at least one study. Uh, the other one is an Acute Low Back Pain Screening Questionnaire, which is a 21-item uh, questionnaire, uh, which has been looked at in a few studies. Um, and those seem to be um, you know, about equivalent in terms of their, uh, their ability to uh, predict um, chronicity. Um, there's certainly work going on. We, I know of several colleagues who are uh, interested in this area and are actually trying to, uh, uh, you know, develop and validate these types of instruments. So we hope that they'll be, um, uh, we'll be able to give stronger, you know, recommendations or guidance about how to use these things in the future. Um, but I would say that from the clinical standpoint, um, it, uh, you know, it, it might be just as useful at this time to look at some of these individual predictors, you know, the five or so that we uh, call out as being the most predictive. And if somebody has one of those, 
you know, they're at higher risk, uh, or at least higher risk than, you know, the all comers with acute low back pain. Um, and that, you know, at this point may be the way to go. Thank you very much. Sure. Well, well thank you. Uh, Reginald, if you're still on, can I ask you a question? I mean, does do, do these individual predictive risk factors, are they useful in, in the context of your work or your practice? Well, they, they seem to follow pretty close to, to what my practice pattern has been. I was a little surprised about the fact that education uh, wasn't a stronger predictor. Um, when we think about patients who develop stress, everybody talks about how it has the, a cognitive value, and, and education always seems to drop into that bailiwick. So that was surprising. But my problem is that uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a surgeon. Uh-huh. And surgery gets a lot of bad press, and, and a lot of the things are the fact that we predict, uh, we choose poor patients, and when we're trying to predict which patients to choose, we rely a lot upon the psychological evaluations, but unfortunately, most of the insurance carriers don't pay for psychological, either preoperative or postoperative evaluation, so we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place with a patient who has all the things that Dr. Chow has mentioned and still has a structural problem with their spine, so it's, it's kind of a catch-22. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point, and thank you for bringing up the benefits and coverage issue. So you're, you're saying, uh, as a, a surgeon of the spine, you would like to have access to this information, uh, certainly before surgery in terms of selecting patients for surgery. Correct. Oh, that's wonderful. And any comments on that, Dr. Chow? Yeah, I mean, I think this gets back to what you were saying before, I mean, um, about you know, the, the mechanical thing just being a piece of it. And I think what uh, Dr. Knight was referring to uh, in part is that if somebody has a lot of these, um, uh, you know, predictors of, you know, problems or high-risk factors, they don't do well with anything, surgery Correct. or otherwise. And it does make a lot of sense from a societal standpoint um, to instead of doing a surgery because that's the only thing that gets covered, uh, to have psychological therapies and other types of therapies available for those types of patients. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to guess that Dr. Knight really doesn't want to do surgery on some of these people until they've had some of these issues addressed. Um, but let's, 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 let's let him answer that question. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's the, the, you know, there's no doubt that if I operate on a patient with a poor psychological behavior, he's not going to do well. The problem is that my medical colleagues are deluged with patients who present to them with, you know, a herniated disc or maybe spinal stenosis, and they have nothing else that they can do with that patient. Uh, and so they send them to me, and then they're disappointed because I won't operate on them because they have some sort of really odd uh, psychological behavior. So we're kind of, the patient then says, well, they're being bounced around. No one wants to take care of me. Uh, and that's because everybody realizes that they're in a bad situation and they're not going to do well. Well, I, I just want to say kudos to you, Dr. Knight, for actually saying no in those instances to the pressure from your colleagues. That's got to be a difficult position to be in. It has been at times. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, I think a, another plea probably for our system to do better at, you know, both identifying the need for those services and finding a way to provide them. So I, I want to thank you to, for your question and, and your comments. Um, and then before we go on to our next caller, um, I actually want to inv really ask if there's anybody else in the audience today who has experience uh, either assessing or treating 
uh, the psychological components of pain in these patients. And specifically, we'd love to hear from somebody who either has a system or has found out a way to address these issues. So if you have any insights into that, please give us a call. I'd like now to go back to Carrie and uh, check in with our next caller, please. And as a reminder, it is star one to ask a question, and we'll move to Mark Schoen with the back letters. Hi, Roger. Um, I was curious from a shared decision-making perspective whether you would share this information and evidence with patients so they might recognize the development of these risk factors in themselves. Uh, th that's a very interesting question. I mean, I, I think the, you know, the, I think the ideal of when we're, when we're talking about, you know, the concepts behind shared decision-making is you want people to be as informed as possible so that they can make, you know, decisions that are good for them and are consistent with their preferences and values. We think that there is a problem these days in that um, a lot of the decisions are not made from an informed perspective um, or they're not uh, necessarily kind of tailored uh, to the individual patient. So that, that's kind of the whole premise behind shared decision-making. I think some of these issues that um, kind of are raised when you start thinking about the kind of the psychosocial uh, predictors of pain and how that affects patient outcomes, um, they can be a little bit tricky uh, because I think that there's, um, you know, a, a risk that, or a concern, I should say, that people um, will perceive it as you're saying, as the clinician or the doctor is saying that this is all in their head and that it's not real pain. Um, uh, that doesn't mean I don't think people should do it. I think that, you know, uh, we need to, you know, confront and be realistic with people and, uh, and, and, and provide the kinds of information that's important. So, so for example, if, if I see somebody who is not, um, who has stopped doing their daily walks because they're afraid they're going to cause, you know, more damage to their disc, um, even though we have no idea whether the disc is, you know, the source of their pain or not, I think it's important to address that directly and uh, explain to the patient that the best thing they can do for themselves is to stay active, uh, that just because there's a degenerated disc doesn't mean that that's causing their pain and that doing their normal activities is not going to affect, you know, uh, whether the disc causes more problems or not. Um, and you might even get to the stage of saying, you know, I really can't um, or don't think it's right to uh, send you for more invasive procedures or other testing until we've addressed some of these issues. I think all of that is very appropriate. I think there's barriers to doing that. Uh, time is a barrier, kind of fear of having patients get mad, you know, because, uh, you know, again, I think clinicians probably are going to need a little bit of training or um, some practice about how to do this in a way that, um, you know, is acceptable to people. Um, but, yeah, I think it's important, and I think that's a really interesting perspective. Yeah, that is a great perspective. I'd like to ask our caller, do you have any experience uh, with, you know, trying to address some of these factors with patients? No, I'm not a physician. I, I, I analyze back, the evidence on back pain, and I'm, I work with the Cochrane Collaboration as a consumer representative. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Well, well, let me ask you this question. As a yeah. consumer wearing that hat for the moment, yeah. um, if your physician or provider was um, t to say to you, I think we need to get you some additional services now because you have maladaptive pain coping behaviors, um, obviously putting that in, in non-pejorative language, yeah. how do you think you or other consumers might respond to that? 
Well, I think it's all in the language. I think if you put it in, in, in human terms, you can you can get that across without offending someone. I think if you put it in the terms that it was you know written in a study, you would not. So that would be my perspective. I'm Got it. So, so 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 done well. In in fact, many of our patients might be appreciative um, of that additional information. Yeah, I think you could explain to people that these are excessive fears. The evidence doesn't support that. They shouldn't fear these things, as Roger was saying. You know, just in sort of human language. Great. Okay. And I, I, was gonna make... follow, I have a follow-up question, if that's possible. Go. Yes, please. Okay, sure. I'm skeptical that physical therapists can effectively address fear avoidance behavior, and there aren't very many cognitive therapy programs for back pain in the U.S. And I was curious if you think we just we need better services. Great question. Uh, yeah, that, that is a great question, and um, uh, I'll say I'll put in a plug for cognitive behavioral therapy um, in the primary care office because I think that this is something that primary care clinicians can do. Cognitive behavioral therapy is not, um, you know, it's not psychotherapy. It's not Freudian stuff. It's very much uh, based on kind of simple principles, and the principles are you know, correcting mistaken beliefs, um, understanding the behaviors, and changing maladaptive behaviors. I mean, it's very kind of process and goal-oriented, um, and it actually requires the patient to do a lot of work on their own. They, you know, they have little workbooks and, and say kind of uh, to, to uh, you know, write down what they're doing when they have pain and how they're coping with it, and then um, you see uh, patterns there, and you ask them to make incremental changes. It's not real complicated stuff. I think that um, uh, so, so, so for many patients, that may be sufficient. I think the problem is that very few primary care clinicians have any training in CBT. I think many of them feel that it's too complicated or something that they can't deal with, or they don't have time to deal with it, or they aren't going to get compensated for it. Um, so I think that there are barriers there, but I think that some of these barriers are overblown. Um, I do think that there are many patients who are, there are some patients, I should say, who are more complicated and might not be successfully, you know, dealt with or managed in the primary care office, and we definitely need more resources with, you know, for, uh, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and that's a problem in lots of places, including where I practice. It's very difficult. Um, to find a, a person that can do CBT for low back pain, um, to find someone quickly is next to impossible. Um, and then if you have somebody who's underinsured or uninsured, then, you know, you're pretty much out of luck. Um, and a lot of these patients uh, fall into those categories. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of barriers. I think some of them could be addressed uh, in the primary care office, but it really would require a kind of different mindset about what, you know, primary care docs can provide. Uh, so, so so, 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 Roger, as a primary care doc, well, let me follow up on that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, say there are some either clinics or providers out there that want to begin to learn how to do basic cognitive behavioral therapy for this or other reasons. Do you have any resources on the top of the, your head you can refer us to, uh, either text or, or web-based resources that you think will uh, can help get us started down this path? Yeah, so there's a... Um Oh gosh, I'm blanking right now. There's a there's a um, there's a place in British Columbia um, that has a lot so some resources for cognitive behavioral therapy, um, including some workbooks and worksheets that uh, people can use. Um, there's a um, national. If, 
Yeah, there's a National Association for Cognitive Behavioral Therapists, which has some referrals. I mean, that, that has some uh, has like an online bookstore and has stuff that can be ordered um, and that kind of thing as well. So, so there's definitely, you know, resources out there uh, to do. And, and I'm really, I mean, again, I'm talking about kind of the, um, you know, some of the more simpler uh, types of cognitive behavioral therapy, um, but there are definitely resources for primary care docs. Great. Okay. Thank you very much. And thank you for your question. Sure. My pleasure. Great. Uh, let's go back to Carrie now and see if we have any other callers on the line. Not at this time, but once again, it is star one if you would like to ask a question. Great. And again, we would love to hear from somebody out in the practice world who is successfully uh, either doing uh, the, the stratification as described in Dr. Cho's articles or really has any success in terms of uh, being able to treat some of the um, some of the components that seem to be predictive, um, I'd like to circle back to our previous caller's comment about physical therapy, and see if you have any advice, Dr. Chow, in terms of how to loop that in. Uh, his specific question was about maladaptive pain behaviors. Um, have you had any success either? with the maladaptive pain behavior per se, or can you give us advice on how you would use physical therapy in this subset of patients that seems to be high risk? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's, this is a, a common dilemma in clinical practice in that uh, often many primary care docs um, don't know the physical therapists that they're sending their patients to and don't know what they're doing. And so, um, you know, physical therapy is not like giving a drug where it's pretty clear, you know, what, you know, the patient is going to receive. Um, physical therapy can really differ. People have very different styles and very different approaches. And so this does make it challenging. And, you know, my uh, recommend, I mean, the people that I've talked to who seem to be real successful in using the physical therapy are people that really do know who they're referring them to, who pick up the phone and talk to the physical therapist or, um, you know, send their, or, or you know, even go visit um, and see what's going on there. And you want physical, you know, physical therapy, um, people have a lot of questions about which type of physical therapy is most effective. There's all sorts of um, different types of methods. You know, there's McKenzie methods, and there's something called the Alexander Technique, which isn't really physical therapy, but you know, kind of uh, there's posture and relaxation and stuff like that involved with that. You know, there's even yoga and other types of, super, you know, strengthening exercises, uh, general aerobic activities, things like that. Um, I would say that, you know, the basic message is that activity seems to help. And it's not really clear whether one type of activity is all that much better than others. Um, what seems to be, uh, and I think it's reasonable to think that a physical therapist who uh, can engage patients um, and can get people involved and interested and excited about um, doing the exercise is going to be more successful than one who isn't. Um, I don't think that there's, uh, I mean, uh, from our evidence reviews, we know that there's a lot of other stuff that physical therapists do, including uh, what we call physical modalities, things like ultrasound and laser treatments and interferential therapy and traction and stuff like that. There really isn't str strong evidence behind most of those things. And so I try to be pretty specific when I refer patients uh, to physical therapy and 
try to focus on, you know, the exercise because that's really where the evidence is. Uh, the other thing, of course, being that exercise is not just good for your back. It's, you know, it's a lot, you know, I try to make the point to patients that this is an opportunity to make some lifestyle changes, um, not just for the back, but for your overall health and try to get people to think of it not just in terms of, oh, I'm going to exercise because I have low back pain now, uh, but to kind of try to, you know, incorporate that into their life. Um, in terms of addressing the fear avoidance stuff uh, specifically, I think that uh, probably, I, I think most physical therapists, I, I think uh, Mark was correct that most physical therapists aren't trained to do that. The places that are, uh, that do, that are skilled at addressing that are probably the uh, integrated interdisciplinary centers. And there aren't that many of those, and it's, again, it's hard to get patients into them, mostly because of coverage issues um, and because there aren't many there. Uh, but those are places which really integrate physical therapy with um, psychological, cognitive behavioral therapy, as well as other types of disciplines. And um, you can see why that would be successful, because they're kind of addressing, you know, not just the exercise or physical component, but also some of the uh, psychological issues. Um, and like I said before, I mean, this has been a problem that we often can't get people into these places. Um, if you don't live near a big city, you're probably out of luck in terms of being able to access um, those kinds of facilities. Um, there are a few centers, you know, that are, you know, pretty well known. There's, you know, the Dartmouth has one, uh, Mayo Clinic has one. There's a few other places that really do try to do this kind of thing. Um, but again, it's expensive, and um, and, and it sounds like they're few and far between. Yes. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you. I, uh, let's check back in with Carrie one more time and see if there's any questions uh, waiting. We have no questions at this time. Great. Okay. Well, thank you. So I, I have one other sort of um, thing for you to re reflect on, Roger, and 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 that would be, you know, in terms of this segment of patients with low back pain uh, that we identify. Um, as really being a high risk for going on to persistent disabling back pain. If you were gonna design sort of the system or the intervention to take optimal care of these people, and, and let's suspend for, for a moment con concerns about coverage, and I don't mean cost, but simply what's a covered benefit and what's not perhaps in a system more like Kaiser or the VA or in an optimally redesigned health system. Um, what would you try to put together for these patients? How would you try to structure things uh, to help get the best outcome? I mean, I think that um, there's really, you know, you know, if you look at the, you know, the strongest predictors, um, which again are maladaptive pain gulping behaviors, non-organic signs, psychiatric comorbidities, um, and then you have functional impairment and general health status, you know, so the first three things um, really fit into these kind of psychological issues where people aren't dealing with the pain appropriately um, or they've got underlying depression or anxiety. And I think being able to access, so, so I think being able to access um, that kind of help um, when you need it early on would be really valuable. If, if that means having someone in the clinic that can do CBT, um, that would be really helpful. Care coordination would be another strategy for trying to address that. Um, the VA and other places have started looking at care coordination as a method for dealing with 
uh, pain, and I've had some success uh, with that. Um, and so there's ways to kind of bring those services uh, into the clinic. I, I think there's also um, ways to try to um, streamline, you know, referral processes and things like that uh, that could be useful. You know, if you have a clinic and you develop a relationship with somebody who does, you know, CBT, um, that might be another strategy. Uh, the other, you know, main thing is really functional impairment, and that overlaps a little bit with the maladaptive pain coping behaviors, and that really, you know, it's really physical therapy or exercise, getting people active again is really kind of the other um, big uh, component. And, again, I think that there's um, often a problem getting people into those, uh, into physical therapy kind of in a timely manner, um, at least where, where I practice, um, uh, you know, Medicaid patients um, oftentimes don't qualify for physical therapy if they've got, you know, uh, for, for simple low back pain. You can't, it's not covered. And, you know, these are patients who um, their socioeconomic status doesn't allow them to self-pay anyways, and so you're kind of stuck. And so being able to redesign um, the services to have those kinds of things available would be real helpful. Now, in lieu of that, the other way to, to do this is to use kind of uh, self-education tools. Um, and that, this can actually be real helpful, not just for the, um, you know, you can, you can teach people how to do exercises um, and things like that. And some patients who are real motivated are going to, you know, do well with that. Um, and that can be done with, you know, self-education. Someone doesn't necessarily need to go to a physical therapist. Um, but that can all, but self-education kinds of things can also help, I think, with the fear avoidance behaviors as well as some of the uh, other psychological issues. Um, and there are a variety of, um, uh, there are some, uh, some uh, tools out there that can help clinicians provide that kind of information. Um, you know, there's something called the Foundation for Informed Medical Decision Making, which provides, you know, patient education materials, um, which are evidence-based. Um, and can help, you know, people understand how to manage and deal with their low back pain. Um, there are self-care education books that have been tested in randomized trials and have been found to be almost as effective as sending someone to physical therapy. Um, so, you know, not quite as effective, but nearly so. That, and they're very cost-effective. They cost a dollar or two a pop. Um, and so, you know, as a clinician, you're dealing with all sorts of pressures. There's time pressures and, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and so being able to bring in, you know, some of these other resources I think is, uh, would be really helpful and can be done in a cost-effective way. Um, I, I think uh, kind of a, from a bigger picture standpoint, I think one of the other uh, things to avoid is going down a path where, you know, you do a lot of, uh, image, you know, uh, MRIs and imaging tests, which tend to lead down, uh, you know, to surgery and interventions right, when it's right. often unnecessary. The problem is that that's the default uh, a lot of times because it's easy to it's easier to write an MRI, you know, to order an order MRI, an MRI. Yeah. than to sit and explain to a patient, you know, why they don't need it, why they need to address their, what you know, why they need to become more active and, you know, why they need to address their depression and all this other stuff. Right. Um, and the MRI is often covered when some of these other things aren't. And that's, I, I think, the problem. If, you, if the default is to get more procedures and interventions, um, that's unfortunately what's going to happen. Yeah, I think, you know, 
Roger, you've, you've hit on two very important points that I guess I want to re reiterate from my experience. Uh, one is, is the benefits issue, and at least in most of the patients I care for, even those that are insured, um, the behavioral health benefits uh, either aren't there or they just don't match the um, sort of physical health benefits, if you will. So that's a challenge. I, I think the second challenge is simply the access. As, as you mentioned before, um, it, it's easy in, in our town to find uh, any number of MRI scanners. Uh, it's extremely difficult to find uh, a behaviorist who's interested and experienced in dealing with people with pain issues. Um, and, and I would throw a third one in the mix, and I think that our patient expectations um, are also very set towards a biomechanical view of what's going on and a desire to have it fixed. Um, and, and I think uh, somehow we've, we've, gotten, we've taught our patients to think that way. Um, and perhaps there's an opportunity as well in terms of resetting patient understanding and patient expectations. Um, and that's why I thought the, the question or comment around um, the shared decision-making was really valuable as well. Yeah, it's a really it's really interesting. So in Australia, they they had a mass media campaign to deal with expectations about low back pain. So this was totally outside of the clinic. It was you know sponsored by the government. And one of the provinces, they filmed these ads, you know, with movie stars and people like that talking about you know how you don't necessarily need to go see the doctor with low back pain and how it's important to stay active and all this other stuff. And they actually found that it had an impact on, you know, doctor visits as well as utilization of services, you know, without people doing any worse uh, with their low back pain. So I think we can change patient expectations. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a, it requires kind of, you know, uh, creative effort and kind of, um, you know, it, you know to, to sustain it, I think, is the other issue and, and how to do that. Uh, effectively. I, I haven't seen that kind of um, effort being done in the States, um, but at least the Australia experience suggests that it's possible. Well, that's, a, a, I think, a great story to end with uh, is that, um, you know, a story of success in dealing with, I think, what's a real opportunity for us as a society and a healthcare system, you know, both to have better shared decision-making, but also to help our patients be informed um, about what's helpful and what's not. Uh, and you know, honestly, most patients really want to make good decisions. So I think that's a, that's a great, great tool. Well, well, that is really all the time we have today. There's just a minute or so left uh, for you, Dr. Chow, to make closing comments. Uh, any thoughts you want to leave us with uh, before we wrap up? Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, the main points uh, from our article, again, is that, you know, there, there really is just a small proportion of patients with acute low back pain who are going to develop chronic low back pain. Um, our current model of dealing with chronic low back pain hasn't been particularly successful, and so um, it really seems like a new strategy or, or a different emphasis on trying to um, identify those patients early and, and hopefully affect their, um, their history or, or how they're going to progress um, may be a more efficient and, and better way to go. So, you know, we ho hope that our study, you know, by showing that uh, maladaptive pain coping behaviors, non-organic signs, functional impairment, you know, decreased general health status, um, psychiatric comorbidities, excuse me, by showing that those are the strongest predictors, um, that this can really help clinicians kind of target, uh, focus, you know, who they're going to address um, uh, with more resources 
uh, the majority of low back pain patients are going to be just fine, and you don't want people to be spending excessive amount of time with everybody. Uh, so by trying to focus in on the people who you know, need uh, more care, um, we, we hope our study helps clinicians do that. Wonderful. Well, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Chow, for your participation in the call today, for the enlightening discussion, and I'd also like to thank our callers today. Uh, as a closing reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, our next discussion uh, will take place in uh, June, and the June uh, and the um, or June 16th to be specific, and the title of that article is The Older Adult Driver with Cognitive Impairment by Dr. David Carr. Uh, please consider joining us at that time. Author in the Room is sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, uh, designed to accelerate changes that improve clinical care.